Well, it's really great to be here uh, again. I do love this uh, partnership that we've got between our three churches. Uh, so I'm from All Saints Laylam, uh, just down the road, and we've got Keith uh, Wilson, the pastor of Ashford Congregational, preaching this, mo- uh, this morning, and last week we had Nick, which was just a great joy. And uh, so it's great to have these kind of pulpit swaps. Uh, even more, uh, I love our passion for life, the, uh, the week of uh, special events, the kind of festival we have every other year. And lots of other links as well uh, across our churches. Uh, I know we've been really blessed, our youth group coming to some of your cafe church, espresso church, uh, and other things. So it's just a joy to be here again this morning. And a joy to be able to share God's word with you. And I'm going to read from 2 Timothy 3, and I'll begin at uh, verse 14. So 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all your, the duties of your ministry. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come to God's word, let's pray that God might teach us this morning. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, they've been the publishing sensation of the last 12 months, and I wonder if you own one. Ladybird Books for Adults. Insights into the really important things in life. There are two series, How It Works... How it works, the husband, the wife, the mum, the dad, the grandparents, the student. I'm going to be buying one of those soon. And then there's the Ladybird book of things like dating, the people next door, mindfulness and the midlife crisis. I have to say, I think they're very amusing, very insightful, except for the ones that refer to people like me. I really don't know where they get that from. 
Uh, here's a page from the Ladybird book of the midlife crisis. Uh, and if you know me, uh, I'm a keen cyclist. Duncan bought a second-hand bicycle using money he got for his 38th birthday. Three years later, Duncan is competing in the Tour de France on a bicycle that costs more than the deposit for his first flat. Duncan has forgotten what he is trying to prove. No idea what that's going on about at all. Well, a bit of nostalgia, uh, a bit of fun, but playing on our seemingly insatiable appetite we have for books that explain life to us and help us see how best to live it. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a real book that explained how the really important things in life worked? Not just the Ladybird book on life, but how about the creator's book on life? An authoritative guide, clear, accessible for everyone. And if there was a book like that, well, wouldn't it be the top of the bestseller list every year? Well, as you may know, in fact, it is. Because the Bible continues to outsell every other book around the world by far. Across the centuries, it's had far more influence for good in the world than any other book. So even in our culture that has largely forgotten the teaching of the Bible, it's still aspired to, that of all the virtues, the greatest of these is love, that it's more blessed to give than to receive, that it's noble to be a good Samaritan, that we shouldn't judge but turn the other cheek. And even where it's no longer read, its language still peppers our everyday speech. When we say the blind are leading the blind, ask, can the leopard change its spots? Find a fly in the ointment, eat the forbidden fruit, note how the mighty are fallen, warn the powers that be, that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. That having weighed everything in the balance, refuse to cast the first stone, suffer from a broken heart, and rather than keep to the straight and narrow, eat, drink and be merry, see the writing on the wall, find a scapegoat, wash our hands of the matter, see eye to eye on the signs of the time, fall from grace, and eventually bite the dust. <laughs> well, I could go on. But what a book this is. And as we heard in our reading, what a book it claims to be. And this morning I want to briefly set out some of the claims the Bible makes for itself to encourage us to use it more, perhaps for the first time, perhaps to use it more, to use it more effectively as a church, as individuals, in our families, and to shape every aspect of our lives. Because it is the ultimate guide, the ultimate how-to book, an utterly unique book, the book that God himself has given to us. Now, I recognize as I speak, you may have questions and doubts about this view of the Bible. It's widely dismissed, even ridiculed in our society, perhaps as naive, as dangerously fundamentalist. And if you do have questions along those lines, there are some wonderful resources if you want to research further, there's a website called the Be Thinking website. It was originally designed for students, but it's got some tremendous resources. The Be Thinking website. There are books like I Believe in the Bible, 
by David Jackman. So Canaan Bookshop would be your source for that. I Believe in the Bible by David Jackman. And many more with answers and guidance at whatever level you're wanting to engage. And the aim is in uh, our reading, uh, so back on page 1196 in uh, verse 14, Timothy had become convinced. And that, I think, is the aim, that we should become convinced about what the Bible is and how we can use it. So what I want to do is what I think uh, our Bible reading does, to spell out what the Bible claims about its uniqueness and its usefulness. Perhaps to whet your appetite, perhaps to refresh your appetite, so that we would be getting to know this book better and come to value it more highly. So first, it's uniqueness. And a famous verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, at the bottom of the second column there, all scripture is God-breathed. Now these words are written to a young church leader called Timothy by the Apostle Paul, who's in prison. Paul is writing in the middle of the first century. So what do those words, all scripture is God-breathed, what do they refer to and what do they mean? Well, that word scripture is literally the writings. And from the pen of Paul, a Jew, it would have referred firstly to what we might call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. So we read here that all the Old Testament is God-breathed. So not just bits of it, but all of it. And already I think this is very significant, because for many people, our doubts and uncertainties about the Bible tend to focus on the Old Testament. So here we have Paul affirming the bit of the Bible that many of us find the most difficult. And he's saying that we're going to miss out if we try and sort of cut out the bits we don't understand or don't like, or don't agree with. Because ultimately, we'll be missing out on what God wants to say to us. All scripture is God-breathed. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, the apostles, that unique first generation of believers who saw Jesus, were specifically commissioned by him to teach So, for example, John 16 and verse 20, Jesus says, I've much more to say to you, that's the apostles, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And this is how the apostles understand their own writing that we have in the New Testament. They understand it as scripture. So here's the apostle Peter writing about what the Apostle Paul has written in his letters. Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 16. So Peter is putting Paul's letters, like the one we're looking at this morning, into the same category as the Old Testament. They're all scripture. They're all God breathed. So although in our passage Paul's primarily referring to the Old Testament, what he says applies equally to the New Testament. So we might say 
The whole Bible is God-breathed. And then to say that it's God-breathed is to say that God has inspired it. And that means much more than that it just contains inspiring ideas about God. It means that it actually says what God says. The words of the Bible are treated as the words of God. And it follows from this that it's totally true and reliable in everything it says. Sometimes summarised by theologians with words like inerrant, it's without error, infallible, it will never mislead us. And so my trust in and devotion to God is expressed by my trust in and devotion to what he says, to the Bible. And at the end of the day, if I reject some of the Bible's teaching, I am actually rejecting God. Now, there are at least 40 human authors of the books of the Bible, 30 or so in the Old Testament, 9 or so in the New And they each write with their own personality and style and perspective. But God's Holy Spirit ensured that all that they wrote was just what God wanted. Again, Peter gives us just a little more of an insight into this process. 2 Peter 1.21, we're told men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And perhaps most importantly of all, for me at least, is that this is exactly how Jesus consistently referred to the Old Testament. So to give one example of many, when Jesus quotes from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, in Matthew 22, he says this, Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? And one of the reasons this is so important for me is that sometimes people say, perhaps you've thought this, well, isn't this all rather circular? The Bible's saying about itself that it's true. But of course, that's not the only evidence. In fact, supremely, I think we have Jesus himself affirming this view of the Bible. And the evidence that Jesus is God and knows what he's talking about is, I think, overwhelming. So for me, central about being a Christian means that I accept Jesus Christ's view of the Bible. Perhaps I might just share a a little bit of autobiography uh, for a moment or two. Uh, I was uh, brought up as as a Christian, and I was uh, one of those fairly irritating members of the youth group because I always had 101 questions. And uh, I went off to university and uh, ended up studying theology. And if I went in with 101 questions, I came out with 1,001 questions. Because over three years, you're presented with kind of all the difficult questions about the Bible from the last 2,000 years or so. And uh, by the time I I left, having had uh, three years on top of all my own questions, really presenting the Bible as a merely human book, there was a decision to be made. Was it a merely human book, or was it a divinely inspired book? In other words, did I decide what was true, or did it tell me what was true? So do I judge the Bible 
or does the Bible judge me? So how did I deal with all those questions? Well, I didn't answer them all one by one. What happened was this. Um, I read a wonderful book. It's now quite an old book called Christ and the Bible by a wonderful godly theologian called John Wenham, Christ and the Bible. And that showed me that Jesus viewed the Bible as fully divinely inspired, as God breathed. And that meant that I got a decision to make. Actually, it was a case of would I accept Jesus' view of the Bible or my own? Well, I was pretty convinced that Jesus was God. And therefore, it followed that I would be a fool to think that I knew better than him. That actually the rational, reasonable conclusion was that I should share his view of the Bible. So what about all those bits that I found difficult? All those bits that I had questions about? Things like God's judgment, the existence of hell. Well, there's a, a long list. Well, I need to go back to the Bible. Had I understood it correctly? But I now assumed that where there was something that I found difficult to understand or to accept, I now assumed that the Bible was right and I needed to change. So as a follower of Jesus, I was now committed in advance to accepting what the Bible said. And actually, this has been the dynamic that's lain really very close to the heart of my Christian life for the last uh, 30 years or so. Gradually having my understanding and attitudes taught, corrected, rebuked and trained by the Bible. And uh, it was and is still a slow and sometimes painful process. So I'm so encouraged by those words in chapter 4 and verse 2 of our passage. Timothy is to teach with great patience and careful instruction. Careful instruction, because people like me, I've got so many questions. Great patience, because I'm so slow to understand, and so resistant to change. But by God's grace, over the years, I've gradually come to see the truth and wisdom of more and more of the Bible. Where I once thought it a problem, it's actually shone a light into my own thinking and attitudes and where they needed to change. Well, we've heard a lot recently, haven't we, about fake news and alternative facts. We wonder who we can trust. Well, if all scripture is God-breathed, then we can be utterly confident that here is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now again, if you you were like me uh, 30 years ago or so, you may well have questions about this. And simply stating what Paul is teaching, I don't expect to have persuaded you. But I hope if you're in that situation, it may at least have stirred you to give some time and effort to exploring this further. Perhaps not just writing off bits of the Bible as outdated or wrong, but to explore further. 
and particularly because of what Paul goes on to say about the usefulness of the Bible, why it's so important and valuable to become convinced of this. So my second heading, it's usefulness. Now it's quite possible, isn't it, for something to be completely true and largely irrelevant. I'm trying to think of an example. At 1901, Tottenham Hotspur won the FA Cup. It's not the last time we won it, but you know, 1901, we won the FA Cup. Now, it's probably completely irrelevant for most of you, even as a Spurs fan, it is largely irrelevant to me too. And although there are bits of the Bible uh, that we might perhaps see as, uh, as relevant and helpful, probably most of us, even if we're a, a really committed Christian this morning, if we're honest, we'd have to say there are quite large parts of it. Perhaps some of the history, the genealogies, the law, some of the prophecy, that don't immediately seem to speak to us and to our lives. But see what Paul says, back to chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's a remarkable claim, isn't it? That the Bible will thoroughly equip us for every good work. It's worth just repeating. Thoroughly equip us for every good work. So if we want to live fully as God wants, if we want to know everything God wants us to know and to do, we only need this book. If we had no other book but this one, we would still be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, of course, it won't tell me how to install Windows 10 on my laptop. It won't tell us how we should have voted in the Brexit referendum, although it may give us some principles. But then it may be that being able to install Windows 10 or voting one way or another in the Brexit referendum is not vital to living fully as God intends. But everything he does want us to know and to do is here. It's what's sometimes called the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. It's what Luther rediscovered at the Reformation. October the 31st, we're about to celebrate the 500 years of his nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And the Roman Catholic Church in his day, and still to an extent today, said that there are a whole load of things not in the Bible that were still necessary, like purgatory and indulgences and prayers for the dead. And Luther followed Paul in saying that we need Scripture alone. Became a little sort of banner headline. He put it in Latin, sola scriptura. Scripture alone, the sufficiency of Scripture. If we have this book, we have all that we need. Well, let's just explore that a little further in our last few moments. Paul highlights four things the Bible is useful for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You may know these actually form two pairs. Teaching and correcting refer to what we think. 
rebuking and training in righteousness refer to what we do. And then each of those pairs forms a contrast. Teaching is positively showing us what is true, correcting, highlighting what is untrue. Rebuking is telling us what we shouldn't do. Training in righteousness is telling us what we should do. So the Bible addresses us as whole people. Our thinking and our living. And of course the two are intimately linked. What we think and understand shapes and motivates what we value and how we live. And the Bible addresses us as real people with a whole mix of ideas and influences, good and bad habits and responses, wise and foolish decisions and aspirations. So it tells us what's wrong as well as what's right, what to stop doing as well as what to start doing, what is a false hope as well as what is a well-founded confidence. Now, if you're like me, I think the bigger challenge usually comes from the correcting and rebuking stuff, rather more than the teaching and training. And it's a good question to think, how do we react when the Bible says something we disagree with or just don't like? Perhaps something that really challenges our lives or would be tough or inconvenient to change. Well, did you notice we get an insight into how Paul knows some people will react? Chapter 4 Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Well, it's a fascinating and rather frightening psychological insight here that some people... In fact, quite a lot of people, when push comes to shove, rather than them changing, they change their Bible teacher. They find someone who says what they want to hear. It's like the old joke about the man who read in his newspaper that smoking caused lung cancer. And so he resolved to change. And from that day onwards, he never read that newspaper again. And Paul expects this to be a very common response, a great number of teachers, to say what their itching ears want to hear. So just because someone's called a pastor or a vicar, just because a book is sold in a Christian bookshop or a website says that it's Christian, it may not be teaching what the Bible actually says. In fact, this might be quite a good test. If a Nick, your pastor, never says anything from the Bible that you find unsettling or challenging or initially disagree with, it may be that he or I are not teaching you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because Paul says the Bible will at times rebuke us and correct us, as well as to teach and to train. In fact, I think it's even tougher. Uh, Do you see up in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, 
Paul makes us a promise, one of those rather uncomfortable promises of the Bible. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in context, this is referring to persecution not by non-Christians outside the church, but by those claiming to be Christians, and other Christian teachers in particular within the church. So, for example, in our day, some of the most vocal critics of true biblical teaching, say about Jesus being the only way to God, or the reality of hell, or sexual morality, are other Christians. But if it's not what the Bible teaches, then Paul says at the end of verse 13, they are deceiving and being deceived. Well, if you're like me, I hate being deceived. Okay, we may feel fairly settled, perhaps comfortable in our views and outlook on life. Change can be disruptive and messy and scary. But at the end of the day, I do want to know the truth. I want to know what's right. And I do want to live better. Well, let me draw two brief practical conclusions as I close. I think there are two ways in particular in our passage that Paul mentions the Bible impacting on us. There are many others, but he mentions preachers and parents. Preachers and parents. So first, listen to preachers. 4 verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Well, the word there, that refers to the Bible. And when the Bible is preached carefully, it does what the Bible is intended by God to do. Do you notice that uh, the list is almost identical? Preaching will correct, rebuke, and encourage us because it should be preaching what's in the Bible. And preaching is not just what we do from the pulpit, but I think it's all types of careful instruction from the Bible. So it certainly includes, hopefully, what I'm doing now, including what's going out out in the Sunday school, in our home groups, uh, perhaps through Christian books that we read, uh, quiet time notes that we look at. Now, my job and that of Nick is to carefully tell you what the Bible says, even if you don't want to hear it, in season and out of season. Do you know, there'll be times when You may not want to hear what we think the Bible is wanting to tell us uh, together. But what's your job here? If if, if my job and Nick's job and and some others perhaps uh, shared in the congregation is to preach the word, what's the job for all of us? I think two things. It's to encourage us in this, for you to encourage Nick particularly in that. This book, it's written, isn't it, to a church leader but it's recorded in the scriptures for all of us. It's as though we're being invited to look over their shoulder and to encourage them and say to them, preach the word. Give time to it. Prioritise it. Even if it means not doing some other things we might quite like you to do, but perhaps others in the congregation can do. But above all, this is what we want you to do. And we want you to teach us the difficult bits as well as the bits we love to hear to encourage Nick in doing that, and then to listen. 
for one or two. This is certainly true uh, for many in my congregation. Uh, the challenge may be to come more regularly. Perhaps to come each week. For all of us, it may be to listen more attentively. Perhaps to be jotting down some notes to discuss it afterwards. So as we grab our cup of coffee through in the hall, uh, there may be 101 things we'd love to say, perhaps to chat to friends, to catch up on the week, and all of those things are good. But if God himself has been teaching us through the Bible, that's the most important thing. That's the thing we want to hold on to. If you're like me, though, I can get to the car or my front door, and what I heard just 20 minutes ago has gone in one ear and largely out of the other. How can we listen more attentively to take notes, to discuss, perhaps to ask for some further reading? And I've just heard that um, uh, the older Sunday school group, they're thinking about going off to university. And one of the things will be, how do you find a good church? Well, in the end, the, the one vital thing, the one essential thing for a good church is not the warmth of the welcome, or the comfort of your chairs, I'm very jealous of them. <laughs> the quality of the band, and that was great. It's the faithfulness of the preaching. That's the essential thing, so that we hear from God himself. Because we're warned, aren't we? There are many false teachers. And the danger is we will gravitate towards people who tell us what we want to hear. But there are many other opportunities to learn from faithful Bible teachers as well as Sunday by Sunday. There are books, there are daily Bible readings. Uh, One I've been promoting in our church is the Explore app, where you get a daily Bible reading, a suggestion for prayer, but but also just a a couple of paragraphs uh, to help us engage with the passage, perhaps to understand it and to begin to think how it might apply to us. Well, there's much more we can say, but let's move on. Final point, parents to teach our children. Actually, it's to grandparents as well. So chapter 3, verse 15, Paul notes, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we've just given a bit of uh, extra background. Uh, If you flip a page back to chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which you first which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy was first taught the Bible in the home by his mum and his grandma. Perhaps you're like me, that was where I was first taught the wonderful truth of the Bible, and in particular, the wonder of God's grace in the Lord Jesus, so that I might trust in him. But for those of us who are parents, know that this is not an easy task. We may be very glad that there's a a church with a good Sunday school where we can reliably send our our children. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally, as a Sunday school leader, when I've done it in the past, I've uh, had to say to parents, please do take your children back. great for an hour, but uh, to send our children. Perhaps some of you are sending your children to to a a church-based school. We can delegate some of it. 
But the overwhelming influence is that that we give at home. It's fascinating talking to Sunday school leaders in, in my church. How noticeable the difference is, how stark the difference is between those children who are taught even something of the Bible at home. And many of us feel we've failed in this. We don't do it very well. We don't do it as much as we, we wish we should. But it's fascinating hearing uh, a Sunday school teachers say, you can immediately tell a child whose, whose parents have prayed with him or who have read a bit of the Bible with her. Uh, what a difference it makes. What a, what a gift and a privilege. And there are many wonderful resources uh, to help us in this task. Children's Bibles, uh, Bible reading notes, prayers. And uh, for some of us, the challenge may be just to take the first step in this. So to get down to Canaan Bookshop and say, what will help me? Perhaps to ask other uh, Christian parents who may be a step further along this journey than us, what are you using? What has worked? What's, uh, what would be helpful for me? Similarly for grandparents, when you have perhaps the grandchildren round, perhaps you look after them uh, after school, one or two days a week, perhaps you have them to stay. Uh, what books could you have? What resources could you use? There are DVDs and CDs to play in the car and video, a whole range of things to open up the Bible faithfully, but relevantly in a way that children at each stage can engage with. And then for a lot of us, it's a case of being, we're just trying to stay one step ahead. Because children often ask the most difficult questions. <laughs> Why did that happen? And if we've been a Christian for quite a long time, we know that those questions are quite difficult, and actually we often stop asking them, even if they still worry us in our hearts. Or there's been a death in the family. Well, where is Granny? How do we say something helpful, relevant, and true from the Bible? And uh, resources to help us be growing in our Christian faith so that we can be sharing it with our children. Well, there's so much more that uh, we could could look at and, and get from this passage. But I hope it's either whetted your appetite or refreshed your appetite, that whatever level, in whatever context, to be engaging more fully with God's word so that you can become convinced about it and experience its usefulness more and more in your life. Now, I'm going to close with a prayer, and I think the band are going to come up as I pray. It's a a very ancient prayer. Well, it's uh, almost 500 years old, I'm afraid it's from the Church of England. The Church of England does contain some things that are wonderful. (laughs) And uh, this prayer, which was written by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer in 1549, I've updated the language very slightly, is uh, is a collect. It's a special prayer set for uh, actually a Sunday in Advent. And uh, the collects are, are short prayers that pack a huge amount in. So I'm going to read this prayer slowly. I think it sums up much of what we've heard from uh, our passage this morning. And then I'll hand over to the band to lead us in response. As we sit, let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, 
that through patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and forever hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.